Hello, everyone. This is Alyssa Smith, one of the hosts of ENT in a Nutshell. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider taking a second to rate and review this podcast. And now, on to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Alyssa Smith, and today we're joined by pediatric otolaryngologist, Dr. Kara Meister. In this episode, we'll be discussing air digestive foreign bodies in pediatric patients. Thanks for being here, Dr. Meister. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks for joining me uh, and inviting me to, to participate. This is awesome. All right. So when thinking about these patients, what signs or symptoms do they usually present with? Yeah. So... Um, I think the most important thing, and you'll hear me say this over and over again, probably, is never trust a baby. So there are definitely those classic signs and symptoms that kids will present with. Um, And then you have to just take it at face value and anticipate that things could get a lot different very quickly. Um, But the kind of classic things that we're looking for is noisy breathing, um, particularly strider, um, or wheezing. Um, And parents aren't always able to tell you, oh, my baby has strider. They may say, my baby makes a noise or my baby is wheezing. Um, Coughing is a very common symptom, either in the history or during presentation. Um, Respiratory distress would be a late finding and all the things that go with that, right? So tripoding or inability to control their secretions, retractions, all of those things are um, more late stage and worrisome. There's also occasionally the child that um, won't lay flat. Um, and yeah, that can be because of difficulty managing secretions, or sometimes it's just because they can't breathe at all. Um, and along those same lines, there are kids that won't eat. So if they don't want to do their normal activities, we may, we may have more suspicion. And then are there any kids that are completely asymptomatic? Yeah, absolutely. So again, never trust a baby. If the history is suggestive um, then and they don't have those any of those classic symptoms, there could still be something lurking down there. Um, and so it's one of those things where if the parent gives you a history, especially if you also have physical exam or radiographic exam findings, they could look like a peach and be hiding something scary. And then what are some common foreign bodies that you've seen in your experience? Oh, man, kids will put everything in their mouth. Um, So the most common, um, nuts, seeds, coins, uh, batteries, pieces of toys. Um, The most interesting that I saw um, in the past year or so was an infant who got a hold of her mother's earring that was shaped like a bow. So if you imagine the loops of the bow and then the post of the earring, the loops were um, were lodged in her esophagus and the post was facing anteriorly into her cricoid. And so um, that was quite an interesting case, but they'll put anything in their, in their, um, in their mouth and they'll do it more than once. So... And then does presentation change at all with the different types of foreign bodies, for example, food versus um, something made of metal, such as a coin? Yeah, so um, not necessarily. Um, it's it's not as 
um, specific to the type of foreign body itself as it is to size and what the edges look like and then what the foreign body is made of, right? So we think of things like um, legumes and nuts um, as having the potential to swell in the airway. We think of things like button batteries, which we'll cover a little bit more in detail um, in the subsequent part of the podcast, but um, those can present with a very different story. So there's not like, oh, if you hear this noise, it's definitely a penny. Um, but there are um, kind of findings related to the size, the material, and where the foreign body is lodged. And then I think we've all heard how damaging button batteries can be. Well, what actually makes them so damaging? Yeah, so th that is uh, something that has been debated uh, for a while, um, and right now the current thinking is it's a that negative anode of the button battery itself, uh, and it's essentially creating a small electric field there. You know, oftentimes people will think that it is, you know, quote unquote, leaking acid, and it, it's not doing that. It's actually creating um, a field. Um, in that micro environment. And we can talk about this more later, but one way to remember that is that if you can break that field temporarily, you can um, stave off some of the injury that the battery will cause. And then when a child does ingest a foreign body, what are the most common locations that it can usually become lodged? It, it depends. It can get lodged anywhere from the nose to the carina to the um, lower esophageal sphincter as far as our otolaryngology anatomy is concerned. And so the most common areas in the airway itself, it has a propensity to go towards the right main stem bronchus. And the reason for that is it's uh, shorter fatter and more upright. And so if you um, want to play any, you know, games, it's easier to hit something that's bigger, um, that's more upright because of gravity and has that um, orientation. So it likes the right main stem bronchus. Uh, in the esophagus, um, which is more common, actually twice as as, as frequent as um, airway foreign bodies, um, we have to think about any of the areas of the esophagus that are anatomically narrow, right? So the upper esophageal sphincter, the aortic arch, um, the kind of thoracic inlet over the carina and main stem bronchi, and then the lower esophageal sphincter. Um, just beyond the cricopharyngeus is um, kind of the most common of all. Um, and uh, it, it tends to be that seeing that we see coins more commonly in the esophagus. And part of the reason is because they're flat and they fall along the posterior wall as the child is swallowing them. Um, they usually will um, swallow coins and toys in a more calm state. They usually swallow nuts and popcorn as they're running across the room. Um, and so the kids are more likely to inhale those particles um, and have a discoordinated breathing and swallowing, which makes them end up in the airway. So um, while esophageal um, foreign bodies are definitely more common, you have to kind of think about the story as well. And so when we're evaluating these patients and we're thinking about the story, what are some important history questions that we should be asking either the parents or the patient, even if they're old enough? 
just like any patient, right? You want to take your complete history and physical. So the the one caveat in this scenario is if you do your eyeball test and the child looks unstable, you really need to prioritize securing the airway rather than talking about, you know, some of their other past medical history. So everything that I say about this is under the caveat that you have a child who is stable enough um, to allow you to gather more information, right? So in in the history, you want to know, did they cough? Did someone see them put something in their mouth? Um, I uh, recently took care of a patient where dad found 19-month-old twins next to a bag of batteries. Um, that is suspicious in the history. The other thing that's interesting along those lines is oftentimes they'll have a very helpful sibling who feeds them something that they maybe aren't quite ready for. So I always ask if there's a sibling in the house um, and uh, if that that person has has fed them things. Of course, um, developmentally delayed children um, will find things um, and and put them in their mouth and... um, if, the, if a child is having repeated foreign bodies, um, then you have to think about um, more from a pediatrics standpoint, um, are there social concerns in the family or does the child have an underlying medical problem that may be um, prompting them to put all of these things in their mouth, such as um, esophageal um, problems and uh, like iron deficiency pica type of things. And so usually the next step in our workup is our physical exam. What are some key physical exam findings that we should have in the back of our head? Yeah. So number one is stable or unstable, right? So is this child safe or not safe? How, what kind of emergency is this? And then number two, do we think there's a possibility of a battery in there? Um, so the, the physical exam really is, um, is predicated on those two Um, points in the algorithm. Uh, Of course, you want to look in their mouth, um, look at their oral mucosa. Um, If the child is drooling, you want to note that. If they have any nasal flaring or tracheal tugging, you want to note that. I think it's important to um, observe what position the child is in. And um, of course, a complete lung exam is is very helpful. it's best if you can get the child to be calm uh, during this. The quality of their voice um, is, is also helpful. And if, if you note any strider or um, extra kind of luminal airway sounds, those are, those are also very, can be very helpful. And then how about radiology? Do all patients need imaging? And when you are getting imaging, what type of imaging are you getting? Yeah, so uh, if you have the time, getting imaging can be very helpful. Um, The um, kind of gold standard of airway foreign body is um, an x-ray. So you need both uh, anterior posterior as well as lateral. And that can help you localize um, a tracheal or esophageal foreign bodies or, you know, either further down. Um, The other thing that's important on uh, a plane film uh, for having both the AP and lateral is if you are in a situation where there is a button battery, you can see that double ring sign on anterior posterior, um, but the lateral view actually can tell you 
um, a clue about where that negative uh, anode is facing. And so that area will be more narrow. And so the saying is negative narrow necrosis, which means that where that negative anode is facing is going to be more narrow on your plain film and the area of coagulative necrosis uh, most likely. And so it's nice to know if that's facing anterior or posterior. And then beyond button batteries, if we're thinking that we have an esoph esophageal foreign body, say a coin, um, most of these are radio opaque and we can see um, with measurement um, kind of what it is. There are other findings on plain films such as hyperinflation or localized atelectasis, infiltrates. Um, it's not uncommon for kids to swallow things when they don't feel well. Um, and so it's nice to kind of see if you also have something else going on, like a viral picture, or if the history has suggested that this may have been going on for more than 24 to 48 hours. It's also nice to know if the child has um, what looks to be a post-obstructive uh, pneumonia or collection there. Um, I uh, tend to not get much other imaging um, before taking the child to the operating room, um, with the exception that if it is an esophageal foreign body and the child has a clinical change, meaning that they're now um, swallowing and they look a little bit brighter, before I go under general anesthesia, I'll often repeat that film, especially if it's been more than like four to six hours. And then when we're thinking about deciding who exactly needs to go to the OR for evaluation, what happens if the history is discordant with the physical exam or the imaging? How do you determine who needs to go? Yeah, so it's a great question. And, you know, we've really in this era of COVID-19, which is uh, we're kind of in the height of it, the recording of this podcast, it's uh, April 16th, 2020. So it's really called into question how many aerosol, aerosol generating procedures we are doing and if we're doing too many and, and really fighting for the necessity of every case um, to be proven. And airway and esophageal foreign bodies are one of the uh, cases that's kind of escaped this, meaning that we want to take some kids who have a negative exam because we don't want to miss this. This is kind of a not miss problem. So for me, I kind of go with the, the two thirds rule. So if they have a convincing history and a convincing exam, but their radio, radiograph uh, is negative, I will take them. Vice versa, if they um, have a convincing history and uh, their imaging is suggestive, but on physical exam they look okay, I'll still take them. Because uh, to me, the uh, risk of a negative exam or a negative trip to the operating room um, is is okay. It's tolerated because we're looking for something severe. And then is there any limit to location of these foreign bodies in which we should be involving other teams, for example, really low in the esophagus or in the airway? Yeah. So I think that some of that is dependent upon your institution. So, um, and there are a few nuances to this. So a lot of listeners are probably thinking about pediatric fellowship. And of course, you know, we want to um, have 
a wonderful training for all of our residents and fellows. And so we try to fight very hard. Plus, these are fun cases to do um, to have otolaryngology as a presence in some of in all of these cases. Um, we do try to involve um, other services uh, because a team approach is almost always the best thing for the patient. Certainly, there are cases where you where you really are. Um, you're reliant on a team approach, such as the button battery. So, you know, if the button battery is lodged in the esophagus, your GI colleagues will be well-versed in, in administering acetic acid intra-op. Perhaps you may need a cardiothoracic consult, um, either intra-op or post, post-operatively, um, to look at its proximity to great vessels, such as the aorta. So, you know, there are definitely those types of severe cases where a true multidisciplinary air digestive approach is best. The other consideration is, you know, just your institution's culture. So at um, Lucille Packard, we um, will often split the um, foreign, the esophageal foreign bodies with our GI colleagues. They're much better at taking out soft things uh, through their scopes, like uh, shredded chicken, um, or um, some, you know, vegetable matter. Um, Every now and then we um, will um, benefit from our pulmonology colleagues assisting in flexible bronchoscopy to clear post-obstructive secretions. Um, and so I think being open to a team approach for, for all of these um, can, can really serve the patient. And then how about urgency? When should we th- be thinking about OR timing and how quickly we're getting these kids to the OR? Yeah, so... It's, it's a great question and one that every otolaryngologist will encounter in his or her career. And the, the answer is the patient will tell you. So if the patient is unstable, um, either from an airway standpoint or a swallowing uh, impairment that's so severe that it's become an airway concern, that patient needs to go right away, right? We're not going to um, take any time there. The button battery also needs to go right away. And, and those should be cases where um, if you have the benefit of a nice transfer or triage center, you can already start having those wheels in motion before the patient arrives. So these patients should ideally go from their preoperative care straight to the operating room. You don't want them to go to the general floor and get admitted. They need to be on an expedited protocol. In contrast, if you can wait until daylight hours, that's often um, uh, preferred for esophageal foreign bodies. For example, if a quarter comes in in the night and the child is stable, we will often um, wait until the first start to take that case to the operating room. Um, We can wait on NPO violations in that setting as well, um, whereas we don't have that luxury Um, for airway foreign bodies or button batteries. So for button batteries in particular, is there anything that can be given to help mitigate the damage done by these before we're able to get them to the OR for retrieval? Yeah, so Alyssa, that's a great question. Um, There's been some really interesting work um, in pig models over the past 18 to 24 months that 
um, shows that good old-fashioned honey um, is uh, a nice way to coat the battery and really break up that electric field. Um, and so if we remember back to our physiology of how these cause damage, um, the idea is that the honey will coat the battery and there won't be um, that continued um, injury. The um, few things to know about honey. So um, obviously kids have to be over a year old because there's still a risk of um, botulism, which we don't want to introduce. Um, actually, good old fashioned honey is better than um, fancy artisanal honey because those can have wildflowers and other um, substances that in excess aren't great for kids. Um, and you also want to make sure that the parents understand that they shouldn't like go to Safeway on the way to the to the hospital. They should just come to the hospital. If they have the honey, great, throw it in the car, give them um, a, a whopping tablespoon up to every 10 minutes. Um, if the ingestion has thought to happen greater than 12 hours ago, then don't give the honey because there's a significant risk of esophageal perforation. The um, other substance that's been um, investigated is caraphate, um, and uh, caraphate works in the same way. The basic science data looks to be a little bit more promising, actually, for caraphate than honey, um, but the um, truth is not a lot of families have caraphate hanging out, so you can order it in the um, emergency department. It sounds like there's an ambulance, hopefully not with a button battery on the way, but um, they can they can go ahead and give it as soon as the kid gets to the ED if it's going to take, you know, 20, 30 minutes, an hour to mobilize your operating room. And then when we are mobilizing the operating room, what should we be doing before the patient arrives? Yeah. So this is one of those cases where you want to make sure that everything is prepared, right? And so the key to successful um, airway or esophageal foreign body is never trust the baby and have everything ready to go. And so um, I personally like to have a rigid bronchoscope um, set up for, um, for every case, uh, including esophageal foreign bodies, because um, those can they could they could travel. The child could aspirate it during the um, during an attempt at removal. I've had an esophageal foreign body that um, was so large that it caused airway obstruction, and so having a full setup is is imperative. I personally like optical forceps. Um, I usually start with a peanut graspers, um, and I also um, like to have two light sources because I find it cumbersome for. Um, our staff in the operating room to go back and forth sometimes. And so having two light sources really frees up that step of having to transfer the light cable. And then how about our discussion with anesthesia? What should our induction type of ventilation and then maintenance of anesthesia be? Yeah, so it's it's really a team approach. As with most pediatric airway, we prefer the child to be spontaneously um, ventilating so that they're breathing on their own. Um, that's um, kind of a, a hallmark of this. Um, if they, of course, need to give positive pressure for recruitment, it's needs just need to have that conversation that we can. Um, you know, deepen or embolize that foreign body. The other thing that um, can really 
um, facilitate your operative management is if you have time and the child will tolerate it, um, giving a racemic epinephrine nebulizer um, on the way to the operating room can help constrict some of the soft tissue and make removal less bloody and less um, and, and a little bit easier. So I, I also like like for that. And of course, with any shared airway case, um, just use good judgment, communicate. Um, this is one of the cases where I don't have music on in the operating room. Um, I think it kind of needs to be an all hands on deck. And then when you're performing your evaluation, what instruments are you using? What steps are you going through? Yeah, so some of it depends on how stable the child is. Um, I um, also um, feel pretty facile in, in flexible bronchoscopy. So I usually will start with a um, Philips One laryngoscope and take a look at the airway. Um, the um, other trick is that I usually will repeat my lung exam um, as the child is being uh, masked, getting um, induced, because sometimes you can uh, hear things during that that you didn't appreciate pre previously. Um, most children, a Philips one is, is a nice place to start. Um, I also like to have a Philips uh, two blade because that allows you to scoop up the larynx and see the cricoid, um, I mean, the post-cricoid space pretty easily. It's a great introducer of the esophagus scope. Um, like we talked about earlier, I like to go ahead and have my optical forceps, usually the peanut grasper um, and an esophagus scope um, available. Um, the other thing I like is that flexible bronchoscope um, to clear out any secretions uh, post-bronchoscopy. And in a pinch, it can also be used as a um, flexible um, esophagus scope. And then I know some foreign bodies are typically more difficult to retrieve, for example, a round foreign body with smooth edges. What instruments or techniques are available for us in that situation? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, it depends a little bit if you're in the esophagus or in the airway, um, but there are all types of um, small catheters that can be used to, you know, pass the pass the instrument and, and move it more proximal. Um, the other thing that you can use there is a bronchial blocker, um, which comes in in small sizes and has a nice long wedge shape. Um, that can be used. The other thing I will occasionally do is if you take a flexible suction catheter and you cut the um, whistle tip end off of it so it's a blunt, um, either 10 or 12 French, you can sometimes uh, snake that down in and pull the round foreign body out that way. In a worst case scenario, some I have been in a situation where we needed our pediatric surgeons to perform a VATS to kind of get out of a foreign body from above and below to get it mobilized. Um, so um, you just have to remember to keep, a, keep an open eye. And there's a lot of tools in our wheelhouse. Um, always start with what you're most comfortable with. And then I think kind of the situation that we all are afraid of is if the airway foreign body becomes lodged in the trachea and completely occludes the airway. What do we do in that situation? 
Yeah, so it depends on where um, you are, if you're in the emergency department or if you're in the operating room. But really, you know, the, the problem that you have in that situation is a completely obstructed airway. And you need to get oxygenation into this child in some other path. So this is a time where you need to call for help. Um, you should call either a, a senior partner or someone else who's in who's in the operating room. And it's a great time to also call your, your ECMO team. And so if you're in a place where you cannot um, oxygenate, cannot ventilate, that is an indication for, for, um, for ECMO in the, in the pediatric population. Um, in the meantime, you should keep working um, on the airway. And um, one of the things that you can do is if you're in the proximal trachea, just try to decide to eat, to go down, right? So if you have something sitting uh, in the mid trachea, just push it somewhat gently um, towards the carina. And then if, if you can mobilize it into one of the main stem bronchi, and then you can at least ventilate one lung. Um, but um, while you're doing those uh, more advanced maneuvers, calling for help and potentially ECMO is, is a great thing to, to have already done. It's a lot better to be calling those teams off than wishing you had called them sooner. Definitely. So after you perform successful retrieval of your foreign body, do you then go and look again? Yes, for a few reasons. Number one is because kids will put anything in their mouth and sometimes multiple things. Um, so the uh, classic story that we hear is um, a child that swallowed pistachios or popcorn where they have pieces of flex of it. Um, so I almost will always look in in whichever organ did not have the primary air, the primary foreign body in it also, um, as long as the child is stable. So for example, if, if there's a quarter, I do like to look in the, in, at least in the trachea and be sure that A, there's nothing there. Um, and B, that, um, that there's not a lot of collateral damage or aspirated secretions or anything like that. Um, and so I like to look for, for multiple reasons collateral damage, second foreign body um, being being the most prominent. And then are there any common pitfalls or mistakes that you've seen trainees make that we should be thinking of avoiding? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've said it so many times now, but the, the most important thing in any pediatric um, airway case, and, and these especially, is just never trust a kid because they can go down quickly and what you think may be a very straightforward foreign body can can get hairy pretty quickly. And so always being prepared, kind of going through the same thing every time um, is, is super important. Um, the other thing is just keep your calm. Like there is a, a very strong chance that you can, you can manage this and you can get through it. Um, and keeping calm, the saying of take your own pulse first um, is, is important in these. And um, they're, they're fun cases to do. And I know that they can um, have be a little bit anxiety provoking and for good reason, we should take them very seriously. Um, and, and being prepared is the first step in that. So what happens after retrieval? What does post-op care look like for these patients? Sure. So it kind of depends on what it was and where it was. Um, if it is a coin that was there for um, a short amount of time in the esophagus, a traumatic um, retrieval, you looked post um, extraction and the mucosa looks healthy, the kid will eat and pack you. I will 
often send those children home straight away. Um, obviously, a button battery is a completely different trajectory. Um, airway is um, a little bit trickier, so um, I want to make sure that the child um, can um, tolerate their um, wake up. They're not having a lot of bronchospasm or lower airway inflammation or reactivity. Um, I also want to make uh, make sure that their oxygenation is appropriate postoperatively. Um, if there's been work um, beyond the carina, I get a chest x-ray often to make sure there was no inadvertent pneumothorax or any um, postoperative uh, complication there. Um, Many times I will observe those children for um, some time, usually a day, um, but depending on where they live, if they're uh, many hours away, definitely overnight um, as well. And then you mentioned that post-op care was a little bit different for a button battery. What do we do differently for those patients? Yeah, so um, it depends on what the intraoperative examination looks like. And so this is a situation where it's very important to document your measurements of where the injury was, take some great photographs, and um, and kind of lay out the landscape of what the injury looks like. Um, and then postoperatively, your main goal is to anticipate prevent and treat complications. And so the um, the complications of a button battery can go on for months, um, but a kind of within that first 28 days is when the the highest chance for an adverse outcome can can occur. So immediately, um, afterwards, you want to think about airway management in these kids. So oftentimes their esophagus is so uh, inflamed and painful that they won't swallow. And so there, this is sometimes an indication to keep the patient intubated um, after the surgery. If the patient um, can tolerate it, I will often nasally intubate them um, at the conclusion of the case. And the reason for that is because it's a lot more tolerable to have a tube in the nose than a tube in the mouth. And then occasionally we can have the child awake enough to get a sense of if they're going to tolerate their secretions after extubation. The other um, important um, consideration in these children is that the button battery can um, injure one or both uh, recurrent laryngeal nerves because of um, its location, and you have to be prepared post-extubation for um, that full gamut of scenarios and what that means. The uh, last uh, thing is in that immediate perioperative period, it's often wise to get um, contrasted um, cross-sectional imaging, either CTA or MRI, and you really need um, tissue between your injury site and where um, your great vessels are. Definitely for esophageal batteries, I also look at the airway um, to see if there's been an, a, a tracheoesophageal fistula. And when you say look at the airway, does that mean going back to the OR for repeat endoscopy? It does, yeah. So if the if the injury is um, severe enough, um, I will take them back to the operating room um, for repeat endoscopy at a time course that's kind of dependent on their clinical trajectory and how severe their injury was. Um, so the um, the TEF can present certainly right away if um, if 
severe enough, but more commonly in that kind of week to three week um, time course afterwards. And so I like to, to take a look at the airway. Of course, if there's any clinical concern, you could do it earlier. And usually your gastroenterology colleagues want to look at the esophagus around that same time too. Um, and so it's a nice uh, thing to do together. Again, emphasizing that multidisciplinary approach. And then is there any role for antibiotics or steroids? Yeah, so this is um, this is very uh, institutionally uh, dependent, I do believe, um, and some of it depends on um, how severe the the injury is. And so, some people will say that if you are if you have a full thickness um, injury, um, you should cover them with full mediastinitis. Um, antimicrobials, including antifungals. Um, other institutions don't feel as strongly. Steroids, uh, similarly, you know, um, from an edema standpoint, it can be very helpful. Um, and but we also don't want to impair any wound healing as well. And so I think some of those can be game time decisions. And as far as diet goes, what does the timing of restarting a diet look like? Yeah, so most often the classic teaching is to leave a child on a soft diet through their first kind of four weeks post-injury because we don't want to propagate um, or worsen the injury. We want to promote healing. Um, the other consideration is that the child has to be swallowing um, their saliva, tolerating their secretions, and you, you should not have any concerns about their recurrent laryngeal nerve function also. So we typically will have our inpatient feeding team evaluate these children um, before starting an EPO. Um, the um, esophagus in button batteries will often stricture. So the um, swallowing exam that you get two weeks post-op could look a lot worse at a month post-op if there's a stricture there. Um, and so it's important to, to keep following these children um, for, for at least that first month, if not three months after. And I think you've already mentioned a few of the complications that we should be thinking about, but are there any others? Yeah, so you can kind of divide it up into um, early, um, one month out, and then late complications. So Early things, think hole. So hole between the esophagus and the trachea, hole between the esophagus and the mediastinum, a hole in the lung, causing a lung, lung abscess um, or an empyema, um, moving, or, and then hole that is so expansive and inflammatory it hurts the nerves, right? So then going out kind of that uh, one month, we want to think about um, erosion. So a further erosion from a tracheoesophageal fistula that has formed or erosion into the great vessels um, can happen um, up to four weeks post-injury. Um, and then months later, we're thinking about scarring, stricturing, inflammation um, of, the, of the spine. And then finally, looking at the natural history of this, if no treatment is pursued, we leave the foreign body there, what might we expect to happen? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. So it kind of depends on where the where it is and um, what what it is. So the body does not like foreign things in it, as a general rule of thumb. So say for example, if you have a retained popcorn kernel in a 
subsegmental bronchi, the body will form an abscess around that. And it can, it can present as recurrent pneumonia or an empyema. It can even cause such an inflammatory response that you can get a stricture that completely blocks off that portion of the lung. Um, the body will do amazing things to kind of wall these things off. Um, similarly, in the esophagus, um, I take care of a, a patient that very likely has a H-type tracheoesophageal fistula from a retained foreign body. We don't, there's no way to know that now, um, but just looking at his the anatomy of his um, fistula and the tissue around it, um, and my suspicion is that was a retained foreign body at some point. Um, so um, I guess in a lot of words, what I'm trying to say is that um, it's not good to leave it there. And if you leave it there, it kind of depends on how the body tries to get rid of it. Uh, but it can lead to really bad things like stenosis, holes, and severe infections. And then thinking about esophageal foreign bodies in particular, do you ever see these just pass on their own? Absolutely. So, um, you know, the esophagus has a natural peristalsis um, and it, uh, it can, can certainly pass. Um, the, uh, the urgency really of removing it really depends on um, if the child's having any airway symptoms um, caused by the esophageal foreign body um, and um, the ability to get to the operating room safely. Um, again, kind of like what we talked about earlier, um, there's no harm in repeating your um, radiograph before taking the child under general anesthesia if you either have a clinical suspicion that it's changed or there's been a significant time lapse between the two. Um, I will occasionally use an ultrasound also to, to look if I know exactly where the foreign body is um, instead of exposing the child to, to um, a radiograph. So in summary, uh, common presenting symptoms for patients with foreign bodies include strider, wheezing, coughing, respiratory distress, drooling, dysphagia, food refusal, as well as emesis. However, it's an important uh, concept to remember that patients can present asymptomatically. When evaluating the patient, it's important to ask about witnessed foreign bodies and any th uh, thought about what the foreign body might be, and this includes asking siblings if there are any. Chest x-ray findings can include a radio-opaque foreign body, um, and you can also see some hyperinflation or localized atelectasis or infiltrates in the lungs. Retrieval of button batteries is an urgent matter uh, to prevent additional damage to the mucosa. Patients should be kept spontaneously breathing during retrieval in the OR to prevent use of positive pressure. And then after retrieval of the foreign body, a comprehensive evaluation of the airway and upper esophagus should be performed to rule out the presence of any additional foreign bodies and also assess for damage. Dr. Meister, thank you again for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think that's that sums it up. The um, yeah, the 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 thing is just to, to keep an open mind um, and be prepared with um, excellent communication across not only your anesthesia colleagues but um, our gastroenterology colleagues, pediatric surgery, pulmonology, and definitely the intensivist if the child needs a higher level of care. So um, it's one of the great things about practicing pediatric otolaryngology is, is that you get to work in a team and, and take care of, of these kids and really get them feeling better quickly. Awesome. So I'll now move on to the question portion of this podcast. As a reminder, I will ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. 
So the first question is, what are some common findings on chest x-ray for patients with an airway foreign body? So first, it's important uh, to remember to get both an anterior posterior as well as a lateral x-ray. When you're evaluating specifically for a button battery, and this could be in the airway or in the esophagus, you can see a double ring sign on anterior posterior. Um, And then also the narrow segment on the lateral view. And it's, again, important to remember negative narrow necrosis. Some common findings in the airway uh, can be hyperinflation as well as atelectasis or infiltrates. The second question is, what is the postoperative regimen after retrieval of a button battery? So these patients should have flexible laryngoscopy before starting any diet. They sometimes may have difficulty restarting their diet, and therefore assessment of swallowing is important to make sure that they can tolerate a diet. It's also important to take them back to the OR to do a repeat endoscopy to look for any of the complications that we discussed, such as a fistula between the esophagus and the trachea. And then our final question is, what are some common locations for a foreign body to become lodged in the esophagus? So the four areas of narrowing that we think about in the esophagus are at the upper esophageal sphincter, at the area of the aortic arch, over the main stem bronchus, and then at the lower esophageal sphincter. And that's all for today. Thanks for tuning in.